Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for encouraging our hearts with the truth of your commitment to the journey in our lives. Father, thank you that you have promised that you would never leave us or forsake us. And though the, the journey may get difficult and there may be struggles, we know that you have promised to go with us and to hold us and to keep us and to never let us go. And so our Father, in praise of the salvation of God this morning through Jesus Christ, we want um, you to to once again remind our hearts of the absolute truth that we might have confidence in Christ, that we might know in whom we have believed and be persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed against that day. Oh God, I pray. I pray that you would open up our hearts to respond to the truth. I pray, Father, that in the event there are those who have never responded or received the gospel, had never received salvation through Jesus Christ today. Lord, thank you that you are a saving God. I thank you for your message. Lord, I pray that you will enable it to be presented with clarity and that will be empowered by the Spirit of God because it is truth. For I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in an incredibly religious world. I think none of us would disagree with that statement. We live in a world that uh, <clears throat> acknowledges, <clears throat> excuse me, in some way that there is a God or gods or supernatural or there are things and there are forces outside of human flesh and that um, there is a um, preoccupation in our world with those forces, those realities, God or gods. I think you'll also agree with me that, that there is a sense of celebration in our world about religious pluralism. The idea of variety, that uh, treat religious expressions as a matter of taste, like sports teams or automobiles or style of clothing all on an equal footing. In fact, you'll also note that the sophisticated and the enlightened make room for variety. In fact, the people who are the stars of the world, the real sophisticates, the really enlightened intellectuals, celebrate varieties of religion. personal take on things is applauded. But in John chapter 1 verse 4, Jesus makes it clear that he is not an alternative religion. It says in that text, in him was life. It's an exclusive statement. In the face, in the midst of all of the religious variety, all of the the celebration of 
religious tastes. The Word of God presents Jesus as not an alternative religion. In Him was life. Do you know what the biggest mission field in Oshawa is? Have any ideas? You probably do, but nobody wants to um, shout it out. Hmm? That's a, that's a, good, a good stab at it, uh, Joel. The biggest mission field in Oshawa is the church. Now, I know you... It was a, a real quiet gasp. There was no gasp at all, actually, Shane. But Did you gasp? Thank you. I was looking at the um, 2006 census of Oshawa because there's nothing more recent than that, which seems odd. But do you realize that 78% of our city claim to be Christian? whether it's Protestant or Catholic or some other format of Christian. That makes, because I think you'll all agree, that we, we don't separate the idea of Christian and church. If you're a Christian, you're part of the body. If you're truly a Christian, you're part of the grand body of Christ. So if 78% claim to be Christian, then it would strike me that... Uh, and and. We all know, as we sit here this morning, that there is absolutely no way 78% of our city are really, truly believers. Then the church is actually the biggest mission field in Oshawa. Um, We began a series called Let's Go Fishing, and um, it seemed to me that it would be good to track Jesus' methodology of evangelism. And one of the first examples we have of his evangelism is found in John chapter 3 when he encounters a religious man called Nicodemus. And so this morning I want to look at the evangelistic methodology of Jesus in the center of what would, if 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 it were formed, would be called the church. The people who actually believe in God. And so this morning in John chapter 3, we want to look at this as not just a pattern or a methodology, obviously, but the very possibility that within the four walls here this morning, that there's someone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. Because I'm convinced as I look at the text in John 3 that Nicodemus absolutely thought he was in good position with God. But his encounter or information about Jesus caused him to wonder. And so he meets with him. It says in the text that the man Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. That text in John 1, 4 that I shared with you earlier, in him was life. It also goes on to say, and that life was the light of men. And here you have in the text is the first verse that in chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. Now, 
in the, in the practical reality of this, this true setting, he was sort of wanting to sneak in and have an audience with Jesus without everybody knowing. But John, as he writes, makes, takes advantage of the fact that it was at night to have him stand in as the representative of all those who live in darkness and don't understand the truth. And um, the verse right before in chapter 2 says that Jesus did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. And then it says, now there was a man. Nicodemus represents all of those people who are religious, um, who think they know things about God, and uh, are in fact left in the darkness. Nicodemus represents... Whatever percentage is within that 78% of our city who would proclaim to be all right with God until they have an encounter with Jesus. So if you were with me in John chapter 3, we'll read the text. And I'm going to um, draw out quickly this morning four contrasts that are found in the text that will help us to, to understand the nature of um, those who truly have the Lord and those who don't. There's water bottles. There's like three water bottles and a glass up here. Shane, was this for you? No. They're falling out. Let me just line them all up here. <laughs> is somebody sending a message that this guy is one dry preacher? <laughs> I don't know what the deal is here. But um, there we go. They're falling apart. The text is John chapter 3, and I want to look at these contrasts. These are critical contrasts about the gospel. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have ever everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict or judgment. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light 
because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is the word of God. All right. If you notice, Nicodemus declares that um, he's a believer in God. And in fact, he makes some declarations uh, about what he thinks... uh, or who he thinks Jesus is. In fact, he says uh, that Jesus is clearly a representative of God, so he's from God. He, he says that God is with him, and, and he notes that Jesus is a teacher. He recognizes God at work. He, he's enamored by signs. That's captivated his attention. And um, clearly, uh, he seems to establish himself as a, as a man who who believes in God through ritual and experience. Now, there's a contrast set up here, starting back in verse 23 of chapter 2, miraculous signs, and he he was enamored by the miraculous signs, versus what Jesus says in verse 3, I tell you the truth. In fact, three times in the text, Jesus is going to say, I tell you the truth. The truth against uh, versus experience or signs. And... um, we recognize that in the context of, uh, of our um, presentation of the gospel, there are regularly barriers or obstacles to responding to the truth. There's, there's the obstacle or barrier of religious presuppositions. In, in other words, how you come to the truth, uh, what you have been taught or learned prior to being told the truth. And Nicodemus represents those uh, the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, the, the man steeped in Judaism who comes to the encounter with Christ with all kinds of religious presuppositions about, about who God is and what God does and what God can do. And, and uh, we uh, know people in our own city who or work with us or, or however, they, they come with their own background uh, of who they think God is and who they think Jesus is. And that can be an incredible barrier to the gospel. It can be used by some to shield them from God or to keep them somehow manageable. As far as Nicodemus was concerned, Jesus was just a teacher like him. There's also the barrier of intellectual sophistication, which we've already mentioned a little bit earlier. We all know that uh, we live among people who abhor exclusivity or absolute. In fact, uh, open-mindedness is considered the, uh, the real sophistication, the real enlightenment, the real uh, intellectual. You can see how uh, holding a posture of open-mindedness about all things uh, presents a problem if you're going to encounter truth and have to eventually come to terms with the fact that there are absolutes and I will need to respond to this versus that. We also know that there are people whose barrier and obstacle is simply the settled comfort of what it means to live in our culture, live here. I mean, we live in the, in the greatest country in the world. We, we live in, 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 in absolute luxury and comfort for the most part. And uh, we have the, the vast majority of the wealth of the whole world is, is contained here in, in our culture. That can become a real obstacle and barrier to responding to or or to sensing any need. And 
as opposed to what we're going to look at in a couple of weeks when we meet the Samaritan woman who's, who's, got, who's emotionally distraught and, and there's physical dislocation in her life as she's been passed on from one man to another. And so in those kinds of hearts, generally there's true openness and willingness and a des- desperate need for change. But all of that was not the case in Nicodemus's life. It's generally not the case in those who are settled in their religious convictions who we might encounter. So recognizing that, Jesus simply states and says to him directly, recognizing all that you've said and all that you think and all that you've experienced, I want you to know, he says, that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, that hit Nicodemus like a ton of bricks. Because Nicodemus, like any good Pharisee or teacher of the law, would believe that any good law-keeping Jew was already in the kingdom of God. So if Jesus is saying to him directly, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, Jesus was in fact saying, Nicodemus, you're not in. It was a huge shock to him. Because as far as he was concerned, he was at the elite level of being in with God. Christ was making the point here that recognizing God isn't the same as being related to God. Nicodemus, unless you are born of God, I tell you the truth, the urgent issue is relatedness to God, being born of God. Being, believing in Christ, it can't be negotiated. It can't be negotiated, negotiated away by ritual or experience. Jesus pushes beyond religion and it shocks Nicodemus. Now, um, we all can, uh, I think, identify with that because the prevalent belief among us around us not among us, but around us, is that all good people go to heaven. But Jesus is setting religion against regeneration. Jesus is not talking about a little bit of ruminating on theology once a week, lighting some candles, swinging some smoke, and humming in a minor key, and thinking that everything is good with God. Jesus is talking to him here in this kind of terminology that it's not about renovation. It's not about rehabilitation of our heart. It's a complete redo of one's heart. Jesus is talking to him here in ways that he seems to have not understood that that the human condition is irreparable through rebellion and sin unless God intervenes. This is a complete overhaul of the heart. You must be born again. And so Nicodemus naturally says to him, "Um, what are you talking about? Do you mean a a man could climb back into his mother's womb? Now, Now this is instructive for us in understanding the nature of what Nicodemus understood. To ask that question 
tells us convincingly that Nicodemus didn't know how to be related to God. That's why Jesus questions him. You mean you're a teacher and you don't understand these things? And Jesus says to him, no, I tell you the truth in verse 5. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of time that we could stop and pause and spend here and try and describe to you all of the different uh, understandings of this. But keep in mind, Jesus is talking to virtually an Old Testament scholar. Someone who expected to know and understand the Old Testament scriptures. So some have said the idea of this that is being presented by God or by being presented by Jesus is that salvation, uh, mentioning water and the spirit, is to be had through baptism. That's what he's talking about. That if um, someone is baptized, then they, are, uh, then they receive salvation. There are whole denominations that are established with that understanding. But there's no mention of baptism in the Old Testament. Some have suggested that what Jesus is talking about is you must be born naturally through the amniotic fluid and you must be born again supernaturally by the Spirit of God. I think that has some merit. Except he's talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, not a physician. Not a scientist. He's talking to someone who knows about the Old Testament. He's talking about a complete redo of the heart. He's talking about something so radical. A change that only God can do it. So where did he get this? Did Jesus invent this idea? No, the reason that he's so concerned about the fact that Nicodemus doesn't understand, how can this, you're, an Israel, you're Israel's teacher, you don't, don't understand these things, is because... Um, if you turn over in, in, your, in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, you'll find here the promise of God that is very much in keeping with the language that Jesus is using here. The grand promise of salvation and rescue that was presented in the Old Testament should not have been unknown to Nicodemus or anybody who grew up around the time of Christ. Ezekiel writes this in Ezekiel 36 verse 25. Uh, speaking uh, prophetically as God speaks, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a spirit of, or a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Nicodemus, did you never read Ezekiel? This is not some new package that I'm presenting here. This was the promise of salvation. This is what it would look like. It would be a complete renovation of the life, a complete redo of the life, a complete cleansing. We sang this morning that we are cleansed from our sins. We've been forgiven. And this idea of salvation is a complete redo. The Spirit of God moves into a life and enables that life to believe in God and to trust Him and to obey Him. And all of that is, is presented here in His Ezekiel, and, and so Jesus is simply saying, that's what the born-again reality is. And unless that has happened in your life, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is not your work, Nicodemus. This is not your ritual, Nicodemus. This is not because you've experienced some interesting signs. 
This is a work of God, a complete redo of, of a person's life. Your problem, Nicodemus, is you aren't teaching what you know, nor what you've experienced. And the tragic reality in our city, we'll just speak of our city, is the huge numbers of people who have been taught or are being taught by people who don't know what they're teaching and have never experienced the truth that Christ is talking about here. But Jesus says, but we speak what we know and what we have experienced. And so he moves now to this third time. He says, this is the truth, verse 11. And he says to him, you should have known this, not just because of the, the, the picture in Ezekiel of water and spirit, but you should have known this by the, by the lesson that was learned uh, so long ago in, uh, near Mount Hor uh, when, when the serpents bit the, the people of, of God. In Numbers chapter 21, and the, don't you remember Jesus saying to Nicodemus, teacher of the law, don't you remember that God's, God said to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and whoever looks at that bronze serpent, serpent will live. Whoever refuses to look at that serpent will die. Don't you remember that, Nicodemus? Don't you remember that grand picture of, of trusting in God for salvation? In Numbers 21, the people are once again were grumbling and complaining and, and, and uh, um, rebelling against God. Oh, we wish that we had gone back to Egypt. And we, 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 we're, we're so um, um, upset that we're out here and God has taken us out here to kill us and all of that. And they were murmuring against Moses. And, and so God sends serpents into their midst. And these serpents are venomous and they bite the people. And the people are dying from, from uh, venom, poisoning. And God says, I will halt this by having a bronze serpent put up on a pole. And, and if you look at it, you will live. But if you don't, you will die. And Jesus is saying, this is an, an amazing picture of the very thing I'm talking about to you. There's coming a time, Nicodemus, when the Son of Man will be lifted up. Just like the bronze serpent. And whoever looks at him and believes in him and trusts in him will live. But those who do not will die. Because the picture of sin is the picture of this poisonous venom. We've all been bitten by this venom. Sin is the poison that has invaded all of our lives. And if you think, if you can imagine what might have happened back then, there was heads of families who go to their family and say, what, what should we do? Uh, Moses has said that if we look at this bronze serpent, we'll live. That sounds ridiculous. So I know what we'll do. Let's, let's get all of our chemical ideas together and try and form some sort of, uh, of potion that we can drink or eat and, and be right with God. So let's do that. Or, or others were saying, you know what we really need to do? We just need to stop grumbling against God. If we just stop grumbling against God, it'll be okay. If we reform our lives right now, God will accept that and it'll be fine. Or, or others said, I know what we need to do. We need to form some, some charitable societies because if we give to the poor and, and, and we try to be good and, and, and all of that, God will be pleased with us. And God said, there's one way of salvation. If you look at that bronze serpent, you will live. If you don't, you will die. And Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, there is one way of salvation. You either look upon the Son of Man and live or you will die. 
You are either born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ Jesus or you die. It, God will take care of the venom of sin in your life if by faith you look at his promise of deliverance, his way of salvation. And so it's either know about it and die or believe and follow the instructions of God and live. That's the simple presentation of the gospel. Knowledge of what to believe and experience is accessible as it was to the people of Israel. It is to us. And the problem, Jesus said, is refusal to believe, verse 12. Unless the human is, unless the human is united with God's powerful spirit who overwhelms, transforms, and converts, there is no salvation. And this happens from our part through belief brought to life by the Holy Spirit. He said, um, Nicodemus, you believe in the wind, but you can't see it. And so it is the same with the Holy Spirit. God sends the Spirit of God to enable a person's heart, it says in Ezekiel, to soften I'll give you a heart of flesh. And the Spirit of God comes in and causes that heart to believe the truth. And you can't tell where the wind's going or where it's come from, but you can see its effects, Nicodemus. And I'm telling you that if you look to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And if you continue to, to count on your rituals and your good works and your knowledge of theology, you will die. And if you can believe, you will be saved. And finally, Jesus said, this is the verdict. This is the judgment. Jesus. Jesus is the verdict. Jesus is the judgment. Although he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, it says in verse 19 that this is the verdict. This is the judgment. This is how you can know. Light versus darkness. Jesus is the light. And he reveals the real from the lost. People who continue to love darkness rather than the light are condemned, it says in this text. How do I know? How do I know if I've received this, this Lord Jesus Christ? How do I know if I've received the Spirit? It has everything to do with what your attraction is and your appetites are. Are you attracted to the things of God? Are you attracted to the light? Or are you attracted in your appetites to the darkness? Isn't that what it says here? Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. That's how you know. There are not multiple lights. Jesus makes this outrageous claim to exclusive religious truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And unless a man or woman is born again, born by the Spirit of God, he or she cannot enter 
the kingdom of God. From start to finish, it is a total work of God. And we respond, legitimizing God's work in our lives, by faith, believing what Christ has done. Everyone who looked up at the bronze serpent lived. And everyone who refused to look up died. It is no different. Everyone who trusts by faith in Jesus Christ will live. And those who trust in their own ways, their own ideas, their own information, their own knowledge, their own efforts will die. This is the verdict. Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, in closing, have you been born again? Born of the Spirit of God? Do you just recognize Him or are you related to Christ? Are you religious? Or have you been regenerated by the work of the Spirit of God? Do you just know or do you believe? Are you attracted to the darkness or to the light? Have you been born again? Our Father and our God, what a watershed moment of truth this really is that you by your grace would gather all of us in this room and tell us the truth all over again. For some, Father, it might be the first time they've ever heard the truth. People who don't know or haven't experienced have told them things that they don't know about and things that they've never experienced. But finally today, we speak of what we know. We speak of what we've experienced. We sing of what we know. We sing of what we've experienced, O oh God, and how we rejoice and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. That is it. That's the truth. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who looks to him, anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, the one who went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sins so that we could have forgiveness of sins by believing in him and have our relationship restored with God the Father. That's the truth. And so Jesus said, unless a man or woman has been born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let's bow our heads. I wonder, is there anyone here in the room this morning who would say, I, I now understand. I now understand the truth. That salvation comes by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ alone. I've been trying to work. I've been trying to practice religion. I've been trying to be a good person. But I never realized I was supposed to look by faith to Jesus Christ for my salvation. But today, I understand. Today, the Spirit of God is causing me to be born again. Is there anyone who would slip up your hand that we might pray for you with rejoicing? Anyone, anywhere? Yes, thank you. Anybody else? Someone?
someone else before we pray. Our Father and our God, we acknowledge that the greatest mission field in our city is the church or those who call themselves Christian and part of the church. Religious, working, trying to be good, trying not to be good. But Father, we recognize that salvation is a gift of God through a new birth experience, the Spirit of God, a complete redo of the heart, oh God. Thank you for that one this first service. Thank you for that one this service whose hearts are being redone by you. Born again, born of the Spirit, related to God, no longer just recognizing him. Our Father, I pray that we would not only rejoice in this truth if it is true of us, but that we might take this truth wherever we go, wherever you send us, to share with those who might be religious but not related to God. What a tragedy to spend a lifetime attempting to please God and miss the truth that salvation is of God. Anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So we praise you and thank you and rejoice, and we look forward, Lord, to continuing on this day in a celebration of praise, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.